0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The ship made its way to the Long Island shore, and on board was a senator, a theater producer, a socialite, and others. But the first thing they notice as they approach the coast is... The clam boats that normally would be in this fishing area of Long Island, New York, they're all empty. No one's in the boats. And then as the boat gets closer, tries to embark, you see the brick bats and hundreds of angry men with bats refusing to allow the ship. They toss a line. It's tossed back. They try to embark. The crew is attacked. Three times they try and three times they're beat back until back into the water this ship goes with its passenger cargo. Despite the violence of the incidents, despite the rudeness of the incidents, it's not a war. It's America and it's 1892. A little general, they called him. Now they called him Mr. President. Benjamin Harrison was grandson of a signer of the Declaration of Independence, a hero of the Civil War. Fought the Battle of Atlanta, among others. Fought with General Sherman. He was part of the Indiana regiments. He was senator from the state of Indiana and had a long time had a legal practice in Indianapolis. But also, he was a bit of a cold fish. Not warm and fuzzy like those other politicians. To some people, particularly those that put him in office, at this point in his presidency, they couldn't care less about him. He didn't do anything they wanted. He didn't play with the safe, stalwart political machine that he needed to. Got the position because of his family name, after many ballots in the convention. But... Since these people were bosses, maybe that's the kind of thing where you don't mind disappointing people. Benjamin Harrison is able to do something that's rare for later 19th century bearded presidents, but common for modern ones. He's able to get the nomination of his party, the renomination for president again. Of course, it helps that there isn't really any contender. His Secretary of State, James G. Blaine, is, well, old. And sick, often disappears for weeks at a time, doesn't respond always to the correspondence, subject to bouts of lumbago, misses about every other letter from an inquiring president who's himself staying on top of foreign policy for his absent Secretary of State. The bosses didn't have anybody, little general it was. And this time Benjamin Harrison is running with a new running mate, popular with the liberal type Republicans, the never granters the ones who bolted the party in the 1870s because of civil service reform who didn't want the machine just putting people into jobs who are competent for them these mugwumpy thorns in the party side since the 1870s since the time grant was president liked the new vp running mate white law reed that was good because those are the type of people that might vote for benjamin harrison's opponent Who was his opponent in the last election, Grover Cleveland? Benjamin Harrison gets a rare pleasure in history of running against a former president, the one that he beat to get the office. This change in running mate was had because the banker, Levi Morton of New York, banker and congressman who had been Harrison's vice president, was dropped from the ticket. Well, he was dropped in some accounts because he disagreed with Harrison, and in other accounts because. The party bosses in New York didn't want to give Morton to Harrison. Haven't quite been able to nail that one down, to my satisfaction. But the great thing about a 19th century running mate is, they're going to be doing all the campaigning for you. So Harrison was up at Whitelaw Reed's house in Westchester County, New York, visiting, eating dinner, having a nice time when a telegram arrives. Here's what had happened Ships were arriving on the way from Europe, particularly the port of Hamburg in Germany, and there had been outbreaks of cholera on these ships. There was a cholera epidemic in Hamburg, Germany at this time, as there was in several Asian countries. The disease, in fact, was known in America as the Asiatic cholera. Americans really feared cholera. It was a result of a toxin in the bacteria that enters the small intestine, of a person, and causes the body to secrete enormous amounts of water. Diarrhea, loss of fluids, but a lot. Loss of salts, loss of electrolytes. And the big source of cholera, or the culprit, is contaminated water supplies. Poor sanitary conditions. They know some of this, but they don't know all of it. But they know enough to be afraid. After all, it seemed to come from nowhere. It could dehydrate a man in a few hours. Kill a person in a few days. Stories abounded of its deadliness, of the way people would look pale or turn blue. The problem with an epidemic in Hamburg is that ships would go on a routine basis to New York. New York officials say they've got it under control and they'll have a program to vet these ships, particularly those that come from cholera-infested ports. But New York is run by Tammany Hall. That's the Democrats. Benjamin Harrison is a Republican. His aides telegram him now. Get down to the White House. You should do something here. And so he does. Waves White Law Reed, but goodbye. Happy campaigning. And borrows his driver, his horse, and his surrey. That's kind of a carriage with no doors. And he makes his way through the woods towards the train that will take him to New York City. This doesn't go well. On the way to the train, the horse gets startled and kicks up the carriage, and Harrison is thrown from the Surrey. The President of the United States is now face down in the woods. Luckily, he's not hurt. On to another train, and then the presidential train, then called the Nimrod, will meet him in New York and take him down to Washington. It's already true that in New York and elsewhere in the press... There are headlines about these ships that are arriving. One says, the plague ship on its way to New York. This particular ship had 22 passengers that were dead of cholera on it. Now, this gets interesting. The decisions made about the population's health and quarantines and things like that in 1892 are decidedly state matters. But Harrison's is worried that states won't do it right. He says that states should take their own measures, but he issues a 20-day mandatory quarantine for ships arriving with immigrants from foreign ports. He doesn't just say that ships arriving with foreign immigrants should be isolated for 20 days. He also, in this statement, attacks those arriving with undesirable immigrants, people from Tsarist Russia specifically. Now, here's the interesting thing. His attorney general is William Miller. And William Miller says that the president is legally barred from issuing orders that conflict with state instructions. But, and it helps to have the attorney general be your friend from Indianapolis, the federal government can supplement state regulations. Plus, it's 1892, and it's an election year. So the ships are among the ships arriving from Hamburg... One is in Ormania. It's got some cholera cases. There are five deaths on board. Well, three of them officially are from cholera. But because this is the day where there'd be certain passengers up on the cabin and certain passengers down in steerage, only the steerage passengers who died were ruled cholera. Because cholera was mainly thought to be a disease, mostly of poor hygiene, poor sanitation. And it couldn't possibly happen to the cabin passengers the ship's doctor, and the New York City authorities would rule their two deaths of other causes. New York's health officer, William Jenkins, who was appointed by a Tammany Hall, a Democratic organization in New York City, had his own plans. Uh, it was a five-day quarantine, and only from those ports where there was cholera. He considered the federal plan to be way too much out of line. He doesn't have the resources to quarantine all vessels that are arriving with foreign immigrants from ports, and he doesn't have places to keep these people for 20 days. The New York State Attorney General says Jenkins doesn't have to comply with the federal order because it's in conflict with the Constitution. Well, now the press gets into a furor about these ships that are arriving. Press attacks Jenkins for not following the office, the, the the attorney general's order, not following Harrison's order. He's from Tammany. He's in with the shipping lobby. This was a big business, certainly shipping, and bringing passengers into New York City. So that was the attack on anyone who supported that. Oh, you're in with the shipping lobby. Well, under this pressure, Jenkins back down. Even Tammany Hall says, "Look, you're not making us look good. You better back down." He does. So now the Normania arrives, and it's got people in steerage and about an equal amount of people up in the cabins, including some very famous folks. They won't allow any passengers on land. They go to Sandy Hook. There's a federal facility there, a camp, but there's no real indoor facilities for these people. So they put the the passengers who have been in the cabin, they find a very nice luxury ship, the Cepheus Yet, despite their luxury accommodations, the Normania cabin passengers were furious. They wrote multiple letters to their family, to their friends. Some of these are reprinted in the press. They complained they were owed a higher standard of care than steerage passengers. There have been no cholera cases among them. One letter, S.L. Ballantyne, a woman in the cabins, complained that quarantine among the barbarous nations may mean shutting out and letting alone, but Christian America ought to put a somewhat different construction upon the word. In other words, Christian America knew more about health and better hygiene than other non-Christian nations. There were some significant celebrities, or people that would have been celebrities in 1892, on board. One is a theater director, A.M. Palmer, And he claimed that the ship had not been disinfected properly and argued that the American government needed to move the captain passengers to less risky conditions and fulfill its responsibility to protect its citizens' health. It's pretty hard for 520 healthy people, American citizens among them, among whom no sickness, either contagious or non-contagious, has appeared for more than 11 days to feel in their enforced confinement that their health and lives are committed by the government to which they owe allegiance and support, to the tender mercies of foreigners. New York Governor Flower gets an appeal from six prominent cabin passengers, including A.M. Palmer and New Jersey Senator John McPherson. Criticizing the government, can it be possible that the national government, the governor, press, and people of New York will permit their fellow citizens to be penned up? The press now turns from the danger of the plague ships to the allegedly poor treatment of these cabin passengers. It's a major news story. And now, both Jenkins and the federal government look bad. And Harrison tasks his Treasury Secretary, Charles Foster, with figuring out where to put the cabin passengers. The federal government wants a temporary camp constructed on Sandy Hook. The state government tries to put these passengers in the Surf Hotel on Fire Island, Long Island, New York, which is now up for sale. They're arguing with each other. The state of New York buys the hotel on September 10, 1892, for this purpose. Now they have to get the passengers there. In the meantime, there's more attention in the press. New York Chamber of Commerce starts a fund for the quarantine cabin passengers. Financier J.P. Morgan chartered a steamboat to lend to the state to transfer the cabin passengers to Fire Island. He gets a lot of praise for doing this. But they run into a problem, and that's in the towns of Islip and Babylon in Long Island, New York. They're not part of New York City. They're not connected to the governor or Tammany Hall of Democrats. They're run by Republicans. They're run by local leaders, and they don't want affected people on their shores. Headlines, flood the newspapers, keep off Fire Island. As the Sepheists arrives to try to load people onto the shore, they're met by clam boat fishermen and other members of the local militia with bats and are unable to land. Then, the towns get an injunction from a judge. The state and the governor think this injunction is going to get overturned anyway. They order the National Guard in to disrupt the militia and allow the people to land. Now there's uh, headlines about, will the governor be indicted? He's defying a court order. The locals are outraged. But in the end, the injunction is lifted, and the National Guard is able to disperse the crowd and get the passengers into the surf hotel Well, the result of this sad episode is that Congress wants to act. They feel that it's all been handled badly. They need legislation. And one of the proponents of sl- of this legislation is Senator William Eaton Chandler of New Hampshire, except that he wants to go further. He wants to reduce or ban all immigration. Um, immigration is an issue at this time, as it is. Uh, Benjamin Harrison was seen, at least among Republican circles, as someone who was a little softer on the issue. Uh, His secretary, James Blaine, had run against Chinese immigrants. Um, Benjamin Harrison hadn't done much with the issue. In fact, during the campaign, because he had been an opponent of the anti Chinese immigration laws, all he said is, well, the matters are settled now. William Chandler's a big opponent of the shipping industry. He accused companies that they're fostering a filthy, disease-producing environment in steerage quarters. He compares it to slavery of old. And all through January going into 1893, as Benjamin Harrison's experiencing his final months in office, Congress is debating this. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. but a quarantine act, that whenever it shall be shown to the satisfaction of the president that by reason of the existence of cholera or other infectious or contagious diseases in a foreign country, there is serious danger of the introduction of the same into the United States. The president shall have the power to prohibit in whole or part the introduction of persons and property from such countries or places as he shall designate and for such period of time as he may deem necessary. Thus you see in this cholera incident of 1892, occurring as it did during an election campaign. President Benjamin Harrison took a stand that ended up having important consequences for federal versus state power in regard to quarantines. Oh, what's the matter with Harrison? He's all right. There can be no comparison. He's all right. You probably hear the least about Harrison uh, of any president. I mean, I think Grover Cleveland gets a little bit of a, a touch up in history these days, and Chester Arthur's kind of everybody's favorite for his lamb chop hair and, you know, just maybe his own obscurity. But yeah, you don't hear as much about Harrison. He just becomes one of those many bearded presidents. He's elected to the presidency in 1888 defeats Grover Cleveland. His main legislation is the McKinley Tariff, historically protective tariff. He also signs and passes the Sherman Antitrust Act, but doesn't do very much with it during his term. The tariff is so unpopular that his party ends up losing the 1890 midterms. Democrats win. They're not able to immediately uh, lower those tariffs, but they do win on that issue. But Harrison's not without his accomplishments, and it's he is an interesting figure to look at as kind of a, the fetus of the imperial presidency. I would not say he's a modern president; I'd say he still belongs to the 19th century. But he does make some moves. One of which, as I said, just forcing the party to renominate him and establishing that precedent for a president is is important in and of itself. Um, another thing is the most states were admitted to the union under his presidency than any other. Six states. He also strengthens the Navy, modernized that Navy, um, conducts an active foreign policy, at least in the Americas, is going to be a power, if not the world, and starts the beginning of America being a power in the Pacific. Conferences that he enacts on Samoa. In March of 1891, Congress enacts, and Harrison signs, the Land Revision Act of 1891. This allows the federal government, to reclaim surplus lands that had been granted from the public domain to potential settlement or use by railroad syndicates to say, no, you can't have this particular land. Here's the law, that the President of the United States may, from time to time, set apart and reserve in any state or territory, having public land bearing forests in any part of the public lands, wholly or in part covered with timber or undergrowth. Whether of commercial value or not, as public reservations, and that the President shall, by public proclamation, declare the establishment of such reservations and the limits thereof. Within a month of the enactment of that law, Harrison signs and authorizes the first forest reserve, located on the public domain adjacent to Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming. He'll end up reserving 22 million acres in his first term and he'll give protection to a prehistoric Indian ruin, Casa Grande in Arizona. Harrison, in his State of the Union address, which goes to Congress but is printed in the papers, makes a point of supporting an elections bill, one that will require elections, whether they're in the South or the North, but particularly aimed at elections in the South during the tail end of the Reconstruction here, to be monitored. By a federal court. See, the 15th Amendment mandated that everyone in America has the right to vote, or every man in America has the right to vote in spite of race. And that practically was true, but in southern states, they would enact other laws. For instance, a poll tax that required too much money. They would actually prevent both blacks and some poor whites from voting, which was just fine with the establishment in politics there. But they'd also introduce things like a literacy test that was extremely difficult. And to allow whites uh, to not have to take this test, they would say, if your grandfather was a registered voter, this is what they did in Mississippi, you were also automatically a voter and you waived the test, didn't have to take it. This and other local intimidation tactics kept a lot of blacks from actually exercising their right to vote. So what the force bill or the lodge bill aimed to do was to require federal supervisors of election to go to southern states. Only they, not the local state authorities, would certify elections. They would make sure they were conducted fairly, and they would be the ones to deliver electoral certificates. President Benjamin Harrison was enthusiastically behind the bill. It was in the Republican Party platform, and... Harrison had in his State of the Union address, at this time a written address, it wasn't delivered before Congress, mentioned this very forced bill. A movement started for it. Uh, George Frisbee Hoare had a majority of senators who actually signed that they would be in support of the bill. In Boston, a black member of Congress, Julius Caesar Chappelle, spoke for the bill in a highly publicized meeting at Faneuil Hall, the Cradle of Liberty, is called. Politicians, former union generals, ministers attended. Chappelle attacked weak-kneed Republicans who opposed this bill and reminded them that it was in their 1888 platform that they were elected on and that the president was supporting it. Every man should be able to vote whether they lived in Massachusetts or South Carolina. With all this enthusiasm and momentum, it goes, passes the House and goes to the Senate. Senator Hoare had pledges from the majority of the bill, the majority of senators we mentioned. Democrats had no option now, in the minority, but to filibuster it. Senator Nelson Aldrich of Rhode Island, Republican leader in the Senate at this time, wanted to quash this filibuster and stop the Democrats from getting up and making these ridiculously long speeches, reading the Bible, reading recipes, etc., just a waste time. He moves, looks at Levi Morton who is vice president of the United States and as vice president of the United States, is president of the Senate, presiding over the action in the Senate. Aldrich looks to Morton and says he'd like to amend the rules that a majority of senators can stop these Democratic senators from talking and end debate right now. Have a vote on the force bill. All eyes are on Levi Morton. He doesn't want to do it. They know he doesn't want to do this. He's been a gentleman in the Senate. Senators of both sides of the aisle respect him. He sees his role as being neutral. In fact, Aldridge at one point suggests, well, perhaps Vice President Morton, you can just take a vacation and we'll get someone in the chair who actually supports this bill. Morton said he was for the bill, but couldn't be for this ruling. He had to rule against and go with Senate precedent. And the Senate precedent prior to him taking the chair had always been that senators can talk for as long as they want. This is before you have some of the cloture that we have today. The the cloture is a 20th century invention as much as the filibuster is a 19th century one. And this is where I think a lot of history textbooks stop. And you possibly could stop here in your judgment of Vice President Levi Morton. But... It is a little bit more complex what happens with this bill. Morton does initially get all kinds of press from Democratic newspapers and people who are against the election bill, Southern newspapers, that, yes, you know, he's acted heroically, standing up for the rules of the Senate. But you have to remember, the ruling of the chair couldn't be outvoted by a mere majority of senators. But debate continues as to his ruling, and now a new wrinkle appears and that is that the Democrats side with those Republicans who support silver coinage, something that Morton's against. These are mostly Republican senators from the West. There's about six of them, and the Republicans need all of them to move forward in their majority. They maneuver with the Democrats to say, look, let's get this silver coinage bill that we've been looking to get done done now, now that you need our votes. The GOP, they don't have the votes to stop it. And GOP, Aldridge, and others decide to pass their bill quickly and get back to the election bill. And Morton now does something where all of the press that was was against the election bill and all the Southern uh, commentators get angered by. He, as vice president, breaks a tie in a vote to bring the elections bill back to the floor of the Senate as as the thing that they're acting on. He does a little more. One of the ways that you could delay in the Senate, in addition to just making speeches and filibustering, is you could constantly uh, attack every ruling of the chair. That would waste a lot of time because you'd have to go through a vote and speeches just about that ruling. Morton actually rules that the Senate can dispose of these things by tabling it. So if you have the majority of the Senate and the minority party is trying to attack every ruling of the chair and slow down the process, you can simply table those motions to, and table it really, in, in this context, means indefinitely. They're never going to have time to, to see the light of day. And the Senate, And the Republicans in the Senate had a majority to do that. So that helped the election bill cause. He did something else. What senators were doing, You might have, we don't see as many filibusters as we used to, but if you've ever been witness to one, you'll see that the senator just has to keep speaking and speaking. These days, they have to be germane to the topic. All right, that's the current filibuster rule. That was not so in the past. They could speak about a senator's privilege, allowed them to speak about anything they wanted. You know, that senator was a representative of a state in the union. It would be an insult to the state of the union to not allow their senator to speak. That's the way the view went up until, really, World War I, uh, when these type of rules were changed. And so the senator would go on and on, and what they would do is yield the floor to another colleague who could then talk while they got arrested. Morton ruled, as the chair, that senators couldn't do that. That if they wanted to yield the floor to another senator, they needed unanimous consent from the Senate. And they weren't going to get that. Republicans weren't going to give that to them. So now that severely cut off how much the Democrats could obstruct. Now, Morton is is, is quite the enemy. Uh, and they're actually calling him a, a tool of Aldridge and others. But despite these limitations, Democrats still find clever ways to at least stretch this debate out in a matter of days during January 1891's Senate session. This is a lame duck Senate. So the Republicans have to pass the bill now. One of the things that uh, Morton makes a mistake is chair. And on a routine vote, he forgets to announce the result. That means if the chair is not announcing it, it's not ending up in the Senate journal. So Democrats helpfully point out that, oh, you were supposed to uh, announce this vote. Let's correct the journal. And Republicans move to table it. But by Senate rules, Correction of the Journal is a privileged motion. That means it cannot be tabled. So they have to continue hours of debate over this silly little journal change. This and their other obstructions is is still wasting some time on this election bill. It's enough time overall to gain new allies. And again, these Western Republicans who are now working with Democrats. They get promised by the Democrats that if they support quashing this election bill, they'll move forward with their silver reform bill. And then other Republican senators are are pried off as well. And for them, it's different. They don't care about silver. But even Republicans that don't care about silver, they're told that if you don't support this, um, if you don't get rid of this election bill, you're going to have a terrible time getting your tariffs passed in the future. We're going to filibuster each one of them. One of the first Republicans to bolt from their pledge to support the elections bill is Senator Jones of Nevada, who, you know, tries to make it seem like he hadn't had an alliance with the Democrats. He wants to avoid this criticism. No, I came to an independent opinion. I'm now against this election bill. There's too much suffrage anyway, is what he says. You can imagine a senator saying that anyway. Too many people voting anyway. Um, and, of course, and this is the time, 1891, he says, what if the Chinese get the vote? This is echoed by, by other uh, Western senators, this concern about Chinese laborers getting the vote as a result of this election bill. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Then James Cameron of Pennsylvania warned about losing business with the South. He's under pressure from his own state party. He's under pressure from the other senator and the boss of Pennsylvania Republican politics, Matthew Quay. Matthew Quay had helped Benjamin Harrison get elected, but he's no fan of this election bill because they feel it will disturb capital flowing to the South. Turns out that Cameron had some business interest in the South, the newspapers find out later. Republicans now don't have the votes anymore. There were recriminations. Benjamin Harrison didn't like the outcome at all. He strongly wanted a forged bill. He was a former union general. He had supported the abolition of slavery, thought slavery was reprehensible. He appointed the first black ambassador, Frederick Douglass, to the nation of Haiti. The almighty dollar obscures their vision, is what Harrison says. In doing so, Benjamin Harrison, who had fought in the Civil War, and he tries to do something in the 1890s to stem the tide of Reconstruction's basket. We always hear that, you know, no one did anything after, say, the election of 1876 when troops were removed. But that's not entirely true. Harrison does at least speak out, Doesn't is not able to get the rest of the party with him. He's also not able to win re-election and loses his election in 1892. There's more to say about Benjamin Harrison, and uh, I'm featured on the Ohio vs. the World podcast coming up in September. I believe that episode's going to air where uh, Alex Hasty does a great job. Uh, really, you know, you should be subscribing to that podcast. He's going to talk in more detail about Benjamin Harrison and some of his contributions. I'm on that podcast as well as a bunch of Um, real historians. This is from Sofolowski's The Presidency of Benjamin Harrison, University of Press of Kansas series. Modern scholars have filled in some details about the real Blaine in the Harrison administration. Blaine was careless about attending cabinet meetings, said they bored him. He was forgetful. He seldom arrived at the State Department on time, and after the Pan-American Conference, the president and departmental staff increasingly conducted foreign affairs. Blaine remained ill while the Harrison administration immediately confronted one of the critical issues of the 1890s, the future of the nation's influence in the Pacific. Almost as soon as he took office, he faced major diplomatic negotiation on the fate of Samoa. The United States, Germany, and Great Britain each had obtained the right to construct a naval base there. By the mid-1880s, the Germans had launched a campaign to establish the dominant position or even exclusive control of the islands. They encouraged a native revolt against the king there, and supported a potential puppet monarch. The three powers tried, but failed to work out a solution. German naval vessels arrived there, conducted warfare against the king, and Germany formally recognized the puppet king. However, a new claimant to the throne then led an uprising who wasn't aligned with anybody. and In the process, his forces massacred a German detachment, killing 20 and wounding another 30 the humiliated germans threatened all-out war grover cleveland now sends three naval vessels these weren't though modern cruisers they were vessels of the old navy the flagship trenton the vandalia and the nipsic but they showed the flag and they indicated they were concerned about this issue germany then had another conference which then extends into the harrison administration it took just nine sessions the three powers to determine the immediate future of Samoa in a massive work on relations between the here's what Harrison's Minister to Germany said twenty-four hours before the treaty was signed. It looked as if half the commissioners might need to wait there six months or to go immediately with def- home def- with defeat. Harrison at the last minute made a slight concession, the only one of any kind that he made during the conference, and the result was the immediate birth of the Samoan treaty. The president resisted Germany's wish to exclude this new rebel group as a possible ruling faction, unless the Germans also agreed to exclude their puppet king, he refused to consider any indemnity for Germany, and he opposed possible British control of the chief justice of Samoa, insisting that the authority to fill the position be designated to the neutral king of Sweden and Norway. So you have all these, of course, it's very... You know, American Europeans deciding what's going to go on in this far off island, but at least Harrison's trying to have no one of those powers dominate. And that was kind of American policy at this time. The Navy is in uh, not so good shape after the Civil War. Of course, there's a big expansion um, during the Civil War, but after that, other nations have kind of got a, a leg up. In fact, it's interesting because during the Harrison administration, we're going to have a quarrel with Chile and people might say, well, America versus Chile. I mean, and it almost comes to a war after our soldiers are treated badly. I'm going to talk a bit more about that on the Ohio versus the World podcast uh, this this month. But um, yeah, it almost uh, turns to war after our soldiers are imprisoned and beaten in a Chilean port. And why would they even have the gall to do it? Well, Chile at this time has just won a war against Peru and Bolivia. They've got nitrates, which are wanted all across the world, and very rich country at this time. And they've invested in a very large navy, which actually is rivaling the United States. And they want to control part of the Pacific and this end of South America, want to be a a pretty strong naval power. In April of 1889, There's a storm in Samoa, and three ships are lost. The Navy loses its only real important modern vessel, the Trenton, 3,900 tons. In his inaugural address, Harrison calls for much more, the construction of a sufficient number of modern warships and of their necessary armament that should progress as rapidly as is consistent with care and perfection. Well, you enter a figure, and this is Harrison's Secretary of the Navy, Brigadier General Benjamin Franklin Tracy. He provides the leadership. He works with Congress. He's very popular. He speaks a lot. Tracy tells an audience in his home base of Brooklyn, New York, battleships can protect cities and pursue and punish the enemy. The only Navy that can protect us from a war? During Tracy's first year in office, two cruisers, the Baltimore and the Charleston, join the fleet. He would have two more, the Philadelphia and the San Francisco, to work with before the end of 1890. Also, the Maine, which will become important later in this decade, is launched in 1890, and the Texas is launched in 1892. These are large battleships. He works with Andrew Carnegie and Bethlehem Steel to get the steel needed for these projects. The result of what Tracy does and with the avid support of president benjamin harrison is a navy that is at best 12th at the time of harrison's administration is by 1900 rivaled for second with great britain these are just a few of the ways that i think you know benjamin harrison um a president worth considering not you know i really think people have to look more at somebody like a william mckinley in terms of great change but where did Where do you get the foundation for him, right, is in some of the actions that Harrison's taken. Um, Harrison takes a strong stand in the Chile matter and actually threatens, short of actually saying the word war, threatens Chile with war if they don't apologize. They end up apologizing, firing the diplomat that was initially insulting to the Americans and actually offering to pay tens of thousands of dollars in reparations. Theodore Roosevelt is delighted with the statement of uh, Benjamin Harrison. But the two didn't always get along. See, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, a young man at this time, just 30, is a uh, civil service commissioner for Benjamin Harrison. And most people didn't expect the Republicans, who are a party based on civil service, to take this matter too seriously. But right from the start, Roosevelt's very energetic immediately actually goes to Indianapolis, the president's home state, and investigates charges against the president's home state postmaster and brings these matters to Harrison. He brings several matters of civil service violations to Harrison's attention. First, he finds that because Harrison doesn't oppose his message, maybe he'll get somewhere, but is pretty soon disappointed as the president basically freezes him out. Roosevelt said later that the little gray man in the White House treated him with cold and hesitating disapproval. Well, thank you for listening. Stay safe. Uh, Reach out. You know, I'm at Twitter, at my HIST, at my HIST. Would love to hear from you. Also, we have a Fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on Facebook. So join there. Go to the website at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks for listening.